Hello, and welcome to this Cato Institute web event, the Second Amendment in a Time of Civil Unrest. My name is Trevor Burris. I'm a research fellow in the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. I have worked on gun policy issues since I was a research assistant for David Kopel in law school, and I'm pleased to present this timely forum in this crazy year. 2020 was, of course, a strange year in a variety of ways, and firearms issues in America uh, came up in a particularly strong way. Americans purchased at least 17.2 million guns last year as measured by background checks. But if you know anything about our background check system, that certainly does not it does not measure every gun that was purchased. I have had at least five friends contact me to ask me about buying their first gun, and at least two of them I would have previously described as anti-gun in some degree. We started with the pandemic, which seemed to make things precarious. I knew a lot of people at the time who were purchasing ammunition, not so much in a, in a sense that things were imminently going to come down on them, but every week at the beginning of the pandemic, it seemed like the, the previous week, you would have not believed what happened next. And at those moments when you start fearing your fellow citizens and you start fearing some sort of violence that could take away resources, people start thinking about even the small possibility that they might need a gun to protect themselves. We moved on to protests and a spike in crime. And in many ways, maybe for the first time for many, 2020 put the Second Amendment into perspective. What is it actually for? Why is this enshrined in the Bill of Rights? And why did the framers care about it so deeply? To discuss these issues, I'm joined by three distinguished scholars who have all contributed essays to a new symposium on the Second Amendment in a time of civil unrest. I will briefly introduce them before they speak. And because all of their bios are so extensive, we could spend an enti entire hour just reading those. So I will give an abridged version of their bios. First, we will hear from Joyce Lee Malcolm. She's a professor emerita at Antonin Scalia Law School and a historian and constitutional scholar active in the areas of constitutional history and focusing on the development of individual rights in Great Britain and America. She is the author of eight books and her work was cited several times in the District of Columbia v. Heller decision in 2008, which for the first time the Supreme Court held, the Second Amendment conveys an individual right to keep and bear arms. She holds a PhD from Brandeis University. Joyce, would you like to start us off? Yes, um, as you said before, um, this has been a terrible year for issues about personal safety, both your health issue and uh, fear uh, for yourself and your family. Um, there have been endless riots across the country that are often unchecked, uh, calls to defund the police. Um, nearly 2,000 police officers have been injured during these riots, and now we have a um, president-elect who is promising to take guns away from people. So it's not surprising that those who were concerned about being able to defend themselves would turn to the Second Amendment right to bear arms that every single month this year from January through November has set a new record for the number of gun purchases or requests to purchase a gun. Um, and the total uh, is over 35 million of these applications. So it's an amazing number. Uh, what I want to just uh, briefly address is that those who are opposed to an armed public argue that the right to have a gun uh, for your own self-defense is archaic, the police will protect you, you don't need to protect yourself. And then the secondly, that uh, armed citizens are a danger. I'd like to take each of these points in turn very quickly. Um, first of all, the idea that the police can protect you. 
I think that if you're realistic about it, you realize that the police cannot protect everybody all the time. And that leaves people in the position of having to wait until after something has happened to them and the police will come forward uh, later and pick up the police, uh, pick up the pieces. Um, so even if they wanted to, they could not protect everybody. Um, then there's the question of whether they actually have a duty to protect us. And there have been some interesting court cases about that. Um, there was a leading one in 1981, uh, Warren versus District of Columbia, uh, with women who had been abused um, after having called 911 uh, for half an hour and no policeman ever came. And they sued the, the uh, District of Columbia and the police department. And the judge uh, told them that there was a duty to provide public services that's owed to the public at large. Um, and absent a special relationship between the police and an individual, no specific legal uh, duty exists. So basically they have a general duty to everybody, but no individual can count on being protected. There's no duty to protect them. I was curious about what the special relationship with the police meant that they actually do have a duty to do something. And I looked at the history for uh, battered women who had taken out restraining orders. These started in the 1970s and became very popular. And while many of these women were protected, there were a great many who weren't and who were later killed um, because no one was looking out for them all the time. So the restraining orders sometimes had the reverse effect of really inciting anyone who wanted uh, to harm them or their particular abuser would get angry and, and launch out uh, and, and personally attack or kill them. Um, did these women have a personal uh, relationship, a special relationship that the police had to honor? As it turned out, there was a, there have been some cases on this brought by women or their relatives uh, who had restraining orders. There's one called Town of Castle Rock versus Gonzalez a woman who's had a restraining order and her husband picked up their three daughters, uh, ended up killing them um, and uh, then killing himself. Um, and she brought a lawsuit that went all the way to the Supreme Court and the court came to the same conclusion that the District of Columbia judge had that um, even if there, he, she was from Colorado and that even if there had been a mandate for enforcement in Colorado, which there wasn't, the court said it would not create an individual right to enforcement. So even people who seem to have a special relationship were not protected. Are armed citizens a danger to public safety? Uh, there are uh, almost, I guess it's 39 states that allow individuals to carry concealed weapon uh, if they fulfill some basic requirements. There are now nearly 20 million Americans who have a right to carry a gun are they a danger to public safety? Well, and the, a 15 year span, there have been about 800 firearms related homicides committed by people who have a right to carry concealed weapon. That's 0.7% of all firearms related homicides. And of those 800 in this 15 year span, um, 72 cases had not yet been resolved and may have been an incident of self-defense. So pu the public has been extremely uh, sensible and careful uh, in their use of this ability to 
carry a gun for their own protection uh, and use it frequently uh, in their self-defense without harming anybody, often just brandishing it. So now that there's been all this call to defund the police and cutbacks and lots of violent crime um, in cities where these riots have occurred, the crime has gone up, but it had gone down dramatically all the time that the number of people carrying a concealed weapon uh, lawfully uh, had been in force. Um, the right to carry, to sum up, the right to be armed for self-defense is certainly a key right, absolutely essential when the police are, even if they wanted to, we're not going to be able to protect you when rioters are not being arrested and stopped, um, when you really need at the very end of the day to protect yourself and your family. Um, Justice Thomas uh, has claimed several times, pointed out that the Second Amendment uh, seems to be a constitutional orphan because it's been neglected by the courts, but it has not been neglected by the people who are feel very strongly that this is their means to protect themselves. They're unwilling for the to rely on authorities to come back later and pick up the pieces after some terrible assault on them. So they're prepared to defend themselves and their loved ones. Uh, and I'll be happy to answer any questions later uh, after my colleagues speak. Thank you very much, Joyce. Uh, before we move on to David, I wanted to make sure that you know that we're taking questions via social media. Uh, the hashtag is hashtag Cato, C-A-T-O, SCOTUS, S-C-O-T-U-S. Uh, and when we get to the Q&A portion, I will try to get as many of those as possible. Moving on, we're next going to hear from David E. Bernstein, who is a university professor and the executive director of the Liberty and Law Center at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. He is widely published in top journals and a contributor to the popular Volokh Conspiracy blog. He is a graduate of Yale Law School, where he was a senior editor of the Yale Law Journal. David? Uh, you're muted, David. Thank you. Uh, sorry. So unlike my co-panelists, Nelson and Joyce, I'm not a Second Amendment scholar, but uh, I am running this project at the Liberty and Law Center, um, and I wrote, decided to write a paper myself because I was so interested from a scholarly point of view, but also appalled by what happened uh, this summer. So my article um, has three parts. The first part reviews statements, uh, which Joyce already alluded to, by various prominent gun control advocates to the effect that personal possession of firearms is unnecessary in modern times because Americans have police forces nowadays to protect us, but there was no police in 1789 and so forth. I'm not going to belabor this, except to note that there's a very important argument uh, that has been made in the past by gun control advocates, mostly progressives, and indeed uh, it showed up in the Supreme Court uh, in the Heller case where uh, the dissenter said that you know, this is an anachronistic right that we don't need to worry about anymore. And again, in the McDonald case that applied uh, the rights to, uh, to bear arms to the states. Uh, part two, I go into more detail, I think, than anyone else has yet gone into about, again, the violence that um, Joyce alluded to that erupted in major cities last summer. And more importantly, I think, the acquiescence to or even support from that violence by local officials. Uh, I'm just going to give you one example. Um, it's one that got some attention, but not nearly enough, which is what happened in Seattle when people set up an anarchist 
a lawless anarchist zone. This was lawless anarchy, uh, as opposed to some other guide, I guess, so that some people at Cato might, might, might like to actually have some law to it. Uh, for 23 days in this past June, armed leftists occupied six blocks of the city's Capitol Hill neighborhood and declared it a police-free zone. Bands of self-appointed gun-toting guards set up encampments and patrolled the areas. They looted stores, smashed windows, and prevented residents from leaving or visitors from entering. In the process, devastating businesses located in the occupied blocks. And I'm sure most of you are vaguely aware of this, but imagine if this had been the Proud Boys or a right-wing militia who had done this uh, and the hand-rigging and big headlines it would have seen compared to what actually happened. City officials in Seattle, meanwhile, responded with appalling negligence. In early June, as rioters began to overwhelm the affected neighborhood, the mayor, Jenny Birkin, over the objections of the police chief, ordered the Seattle police to abandon their precinct in the area and allow rioters to take over and trash the building. And after the occupation began, Mayor Durkin defended it as a mere block party and, quote, a peaceful expression of our community's collective grief and their desire to build a better world, unquote. The city officials, uh, led by Mayor Durkin, not only permitted uh, this police-free occupation zone to exist, they actually provided infrastructure for it, like concrete barriers and porta-potties to allow the occupiers to sustain it. While the occupation was going on, emergency services did not respond uh, to calls from the occupied region's residents, and the response times in general in the surrounding area tripled from the police because they didn't have a precinct there anymore, among other things. Finally, uh, after four shootings in the zone six weeks later, uh, Durkin finally allowed police to end the chaos. She acknowledged that the occupation resulted not only in uh, destruction of property and economic loss, but also a 525% increase in person-related crime, including rape, robbery, assault, and gang activity. The next day, the Seattle police moved in, which they could have done at any point, and brought a swift end to the zone. So part three, though, uh, discusses something that got even less attention than the riots, uh, which was examples of Americans wielding or using firearms in self-defense in the face of looting, rioting, and other violence in the summer that was undeterred by law enforcement. The full scope of this resistance isn't really known because not all incidents were reported by the media or to police, and many armed citizens did not want publicity. If you remember the environment in the summer, if you would say, well, I'm defending myself from rioters. Oh, these are mostly peaceful protesters. You must be a racist if you're defending yourself. So no one, more people were not eager to get attention for themselves. Nevertheless, there are published reports and videos that showed up uh, online that hint at widespread use of firearms to protect persons and properties from rioters and looters. Uh, Scottsdale, Arizona has a lot of stories coming out of it. I'm not sure if that's because people were particularly active in self-defense, whether gun laws are looser there, or simply because, uh, for whatever reason, rep local reporters were more on the ball there. But we have a lot of examples of armed resistance there. In one case, looters came to a local jewelry store, and they were greeted by people defending the premises with uh, rifles and handguns. One of these citizens, the store owner's son, told the press, we weren't there to harm anybody. I understand what happened in Minnesota uh, to George Floyd is horrific, but this is crime. And the rioters were deterred and moved on to other places and left the jewelry store alone. A local gym order, owner in Scottsdale reported that he and his neighbors had stood in front of his property with firearms 
and protected its boundaries till 4.30 in the morning. Otherwise, the complex would have burned down. And he was among, he, he reported that there were other business owners that were doing the same. David Ventura, owner of Alien Donuts in Old Town, Scottsdale, enlisted a bunch of friends with military or police experience and several militia members to serve as armed security for his bakery. And the owner of the pizzeria next door uh, told the reporter that uh, other armed local shopkeepers keepers were also patrolling the neighborhood. Now, as I mentioned, uh, for some, whatever reason, merely trying to defend yourself from looters or rioters was deemed by many in the media to be evidence of racism. But in fact, uh, beyond the fact that that's not really logical to begin with, we could give you examples of African-Americans defending their own communities from the rioters and looters. In St. Paul, Minnesota, groups of armed American residents guarded local businesses. In Minneapolis, the local NAACP chapter organized groups of armed residents to guard local businesses from rioters. Uh, city councilman, also in Minneapolis, Jeremy, Jeremiah Ellison, organized his own group of mostly black armed citizens after several black owned businesses were destroyed. In one incident caught on video, uh, armed citizens during rioting in Minneapolis were standing outside a tobacco shop to help the store owners defend the president premises, I should say, against rioters and looters. One gun-toting volunteer explained that we do agree with the protest, but we don't agree with the looting. After a wave of riots gripped Kenosha, Wisconsin in late August, videos surfaced of armed residents protecting local businesses from rioters and looters. In one video, uh, an armed man explained to the rioters, I'm on your side, but you can't burn down your local businesses. Another video shows armed residents protecting a car dealership, and one of the residents tells the rioters, get the f*** away from these businesses. These people rely on their shit to live. Take a couple of additional examples of armed self-defense. Uh, as rioters and looters ravaged Santa Monica, California, in late May, a liquor store owner and several of his friends uh, stood guard. Uh, the store owner told the press that as rioters near the store, they decided to keep walking on rather than confront him and his friends with their AR-15s and other guns. It was a good thing I had my friends by my side because it was pretty, pretty scary, he remarked. And he added that he and his fellow uh, armed citizens also uh, protected nearby businesses. In Dallas, Texas, in response to riots in May that resulted in looting, attacks on police and arson, groups of armed citizens began controlling the streets nightly, protecting local businesses from lawless mobs. One of the gun-wielding men explained, we're here using our Second Amendment right to defend ourselves, and we'll defend everybody's use of their First Amendment rights to protest, as long as they're peaceful. If you have a problem with the police, take it up with the police. Leave private businesses out of it. In short, the events of summer 2020 uh, demonstrate that putting aside how one feels about the police from a theoretical or philosophical perspective, law enforcement, in fact, cannot be relied upon in practice to do their jobs in the face of significant disorder. As I document in the paper, cities around the country, uh, not just Seattle, but all over the country, police forces failed to preserve law and order. In some cases, they were explicitly ordered to stand down by elected officials who sympathized with the lawbreakers. In some cases, uh, police supervisors thought it was unwise to ratchet up police presence and activity because it might lead to more anti-police agitation. So they're putting the safety of the police over the safety of the citizenry. And in some cases, grassroots police officers frustrated with the hostility shown by the public quit, either permanently or with the so-called blue flu, cold and sick and refused to do their jobs. In the absence of police protection, some Americans, such as those living in the zone, the occupied zone in Seattle, were subjected to a reign of terror by armed anarchists 
who destroyed businesses, restricted exit and entry, and used illegal force against residents. Others, either by themselves or in groups, banded together to defend their safety and their businesses via force of arms. In some lawless precincts, only businesses that were guarded by armed civilians are still standing. Now, I think in an ideal world, most Americans would think, well, we'd rather not have to arm ourselves to defend ourselves against uh, rioters and looters and other lawless people. We'd rather have uh, rely on the police and also the strength of our fellow citizens. But in practice, in the absence of an actual viable police presence, the only mechanism, uh, or at least the primary mechanism, citizens have to protect themselves, their businesses, and their employees from violence is armed resistance to criminals who would prey upon them. So contrary to what we started with, this notion that we have the police and therefore we don't need the Second Amendment anymore, what I think the events of this summer has shown is that, uh, is that, we, is that you know, people on the right have always said, well, you can't always rely on police. People on the left now say, well, we don't want the police, we want to defund them. If, if we all agree that the police are not competent and are capable uh, and are willing to defend us, then how could you take away people's rights to defend themselves? Thank you. Thank you very much, David. <clears throat> Again, uh, we'll be I'll be taking questions on social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. The hashtag is Cato Scotus, C-A-T-O-S-C-O-T-U-S. And next, I'd like to introduce Nelson Lund, who is a university professor also at Antonin Scalia Law School. He has written widely in the field of constitutional law, including articles on constitutional interpretation, federalism, separation of powers, and the Second Amendment. He has a JD from the University of Chicago and a PhD from Harvard, and he clerked for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor on the court. Nelson? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, ten years ago, in a dissent that none of his colleagues joined, Justice John Paul Stevens wrote, guns may be useful for self-defense as well as for hunting and sport, but they also have a unique potential to facilitate death and destruction and thereby to destabilize ordered liberty. Your interest in keeping and bearing uh, a certain firearm may diminish my interest in being and feeling safe from armed violence. After he retired from the court, Stevens advocated that the Constitution's Second Amendment be repealed. That was really no surprise, given that he had tried to turn it into a dead letter while he was on the court. Nevertheless, Stevens put his finger on two important issues that defenders of the Second Amendment should take more seriously than they sometimes do. He's right that firearms in civilian hands have at least the potential to do more harm than good. And he's right that the prevalence of armed citizens in America today is very intimidating to a lot of people. Now, the standard response to the first point is to argue that regulations imposing bans on the general population don't reduce violent crime and may actually be counterproductive. A typical response to the second argument is, so what? You don't get to infringe my constitutional rights because they make you uncomfortable. Now, on the merits, I agree with both responses, but I don't think they respond adequately to those who advocate the repeal of the Second Amendment. And I don't think they respond adequately to judges who are tempted to interpret the Second Amendment narrowly because they regard it as an outmoded relic. The need for better answers to Second Amendment skeptics is especially important during this time of politically inspired riots and perverse government reactions to mob violence. The most practically important Second Amendment issue that's ripe for Supreme Court resolution today concerns the scope of the constitutional right to bear arms in public. 
The Constitution's text and history offer little direct guidance about the exact scope of that right. For that reason, the justices will inevitably have to decide how to resolve the conflicts of interest that occur when governments seek to promote public safety by depriving individuals of the means to protect themselves. In performing that obligation, the court should give no weight at all to fears of an armed citizenry, which frequently inspire useless or counterproductive infringements on individual liberty. Nor should regulations enjoy a presumption of constitutionality merely because they may promote a net reduction in deaths and physical injuries. The deepest principles on which our legal and constitutional institutions rest, which are reflected in the Second Amendment, are at odds with this kind of narrow cost-benefit calculation. The political theory that underlies the Second Amendment can be traced back to John Locke. He argued that in the state of nature, reason dictates a natural law that includes a duty to refrain from harming the life, liberty, or property of other people. Reason also dictates a correlative right to enforce that natural law by punishing those who offend against it. William Blackstone, the preeminent authority on English law for the generation of Americans who adopted the Second Amendment, shows that our legal tradition reflects basic Lockean principles. He stressed that when one's person or property is forcibly attacked, nature itself prompts an immediate violent response because the future process of law may not offer an adequate remedy. For that reason, he said, self-defense is justly called the primary law of nature and it cannot be taken away by the law of society. Blackstone's role in our tradition is especially important because he linked this primary law of nature with the right to keep and bear arms, which he put among the indispensable rights which serve, he said, principally as barriers to protect and maintain inviolate the three great and primary rights of personal security, personal liberty, and private property. The right to arms, he said, is rooted in the natural right of resistance and self-preservation when the sanctions of society and laws are found insufficient to restrain the violence of oppression. Blackstone made no distinction between the violence of oppression that results from government's failure to control criminals, including politically motivated rioters, and the oppression that government itself may undertake. The right to keep and bear arms and to use them when appropriate is a vital element of the liberal order that our founders handed down to us. They understood that those who hold political power will always be tempted to reduce the freedom of those they rule and that many of the ruled will be tempted to trade their liberty for promises of security. Those temptations are apt to be especially alluring when widespread criminal violence threatens both liberty and security. They may be even more alluring when such violence takes the form of sustained and repeated mob violence that reflects a serious breakdown of the social fabric. And that, of course, is exactly what we saw all over the country this summer. The causes of these temptations are sown in the nature of man. Our Constitution, including the Second Amendment, is a device designed to frustrate the domineering tendencies of the politically ambitious. The Second Amendment also plays an important role in fostering the kind of civic virtue that resists the cowardly urge to trade liberty 
for an illusion of safety. Armed citizens take responsibility for their own security, thereby exhibiting and cultivating the self-reliance and vigorous spirit that's ultimately indispensable for genuine self-government. Our rulers include the judges charged with protecting our Second Amendment rights, and they are subject to the same temptations as other government officials. As they develop the nascent jurisprudence of this recently rediscovered constitutional provision, they have an opportunity to show that they understand how a robust right to keep and bear arms serves both individual freedom and civic virtue. If they fail to do that, they will help the nation take a significant step toward the soft despotism to which Tocqueville feared we would succumb. Tocqueville described what he foresaw as a government of immense and tutelary power presided over, presiding over a mass of self-absorbed individuals. This power, he said, is absolute, detailed, regular, far-seeing, and mild. But it seeks to keep people fixed irrevocably in childhood. It willingly works for their happiness, but it wants to be the unique agent and sole arbiter of that happiness. It provides for their security, foresees and provides for their needs, facilitates their pleasures, conducts their principal affairs, directs their industry, regulates their estates, divides their inheritances. Can it not take away from them entirely the trouble of thinking and the pain of living? Tocqueville wrote those words almost two centuries ago. There are powerful political forces pushing us in that direction, much more so than there were in his time but we haven't yet succumbed. The spirit of the Second Amendment is one of the things that has kept the government from fixing us irrevocably in childhood. When they interpret the Second Amendment, our judges should honor that spirit by recognizing the full value of the right to arms, just as they routinely recognize the full value of the rights protected by the First Amendment and other provisions of the Bill of Rights. All of these constitutional rights have real costs, including deaths and injuries that could have been prevented if the rights were not enforced. And the exercise of these rights frequently makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. But even if they are in the majority, as they frequently are, their comfort is less important than the freedom and the virtue of those whom our Constitution insists should be treated as adults, not as children. Thank you very Thank much, you. Nelson. Um, again, while I, I'm getting a bunch of questions here, which I'll start asking, uh, the hashtag is Cato Scotus. Uh, I would take my moderator's privilege on the question when David was speaking in particular, it struck me that in sometimes it seems like robust advocating gun control is comes from a source of privilege. Uh, and particularly when we think about protecting businesses from being harmed, uh, we think a lot about African-Americans in the Jim Crow era in the South uh, who had to use armed force against police officers who were often not just not doing their jobs, but actively trying to harm them. Uh, and as we've seen in books like Nicholas Johnson's Negroes and the Gun, the tradition of armed self-defense for African-Americans is quite robust and long. And sometimes... I'm reminded of a, a former colleague at Cato who used to say his one of his lines was libertarianism happens to you, that you may not really appreciate a right until suddenly it's being infringed. And sometimes when you see this kind of unrest, suddenly people get something that maybe they're sort of 
privileged situation for being protected didn't have them understand this before. And I wonder if anyone has any comments on that. Anyone can go. Uh, was that Nelson? Sure. Oh, Joyce. Joyce. Um, no, it's absolutely true. As you said, that you had some friends who never considered having a gun suddenly this year being interested in it. I think that, you know, when suddenly your your life and that of your family is in danger, you realize how important that is. It just uh, so easy to say this isn't anything that affects me. I wouldn't want to touch a gun. But um, there's this core right of self-defense as our most ancient uh, and emotional right. And um, the Second Amendment is the one thing that really helps us in time of trial to protect it. Oh, anyone else have a comment on that? We can go to the questions. Uh, sure. Um, I, I think the problem is, uh, I mean, Nick Johnson's writings uh, on this uh, are, are, are terrific, and that is is a is a real um, uh, a really good example uh, of the importance of uh, of preserving Second Amendment rights. Uh, but I think the point about privilege goes goes much broader uh, than that particular example. If you think about it, at the peak of our ruling class, the very peak of our ruling class, gun control advocates uh, like uh, Barack Obama, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton, um, and other prominent uh, uh, presidents, former presidents, and ex-president spouses and families, they are in absolutely no danger of uh, uh, of experiencing criminal violence. They're protected by uh, very uh, able armed guards for their entire lives. Now, when you drop down a little bit uh, from the very peak of the ruling class, uh, you come to upper middle class people who uh, uh, live in neighborhoods uh, and work in places that, uh, in which there's very little risk of criminal violence. And uh, if they ever should need to be protected, they can hire armed guards as they often do, particularly celebrities. Uh, they just hire armed guards. Um, and it's really the it is really the most underprivileged people, and that doesn't just mean minorities living in bad neighborhoods. Uh, it it means uh, ordinary people who live in uh, ordinary neighborhoods uh, where there's a lot of street crime, and those are the people for whom the Second Amendment is particularly valuable. And it really is kind of uh, I think quite offensive uh, the way people who are in no danger from criminal violence don't seem to care very much. Uh, about the ability of ordinary people to protect themselves from it. Thank you. All right, I'm going to go to the questions uh, here from our, our viewers. The first one I'm going to ask, uh, and this is open to anyone, because from Matt Hurt, who asks, how does one square Antonin Scalia's idea that the Second Amendment does not provide unlimited protections and the phrase shall not be infringed? I know, Nelson, you have criticized the Heller decision to some extent. Uh, maybe Joyce or Dave might want to say something about that, too. Uh, well, I've criticized the Heller decision uh, for sure, but not on that ground. Uh, there, there is no constitutional right that is absolute uh, in the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, or, uh, or anywhere else, uh, really, in, in the Constitution. Um, and so I think that's just... Uh, um, I, I think that's just a, a mistake to, to criticize Scalia for not 
uh, not turning the Second Amendment into a tool of anarchy. But you can't. I mean, the Second Amendment, the criticism that he, he left too many avenues open and unclear interpretations of the meaning of the Second Amendment with his sensitive places and, and presumptive lawfulness of existing regulations um, maybe goes a little bit too far. Oh, that that's absolutely true. That that there's all kinds of problems with with the with the Heller opinion, including the the gratuitous and irresponsible endorsement of gun control measures that were not before the court in that case. That's all true. But to say that 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 uh, the, the right to keep and bear arms allows anybody to have any kind of weapon anytime they they choose, um, which is what it would mean to say that the uh, that the that the amendment is that the right is absolute. That I think is just it is unsustainable. Yeah. Uh, this I'll, one I'll I'm just oh, Joyce, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, uh, yeah, I just agree with Nelson on this idea that no right is absolute. But what's happened with the Second Amendment is that there are people that argue and make whole lists of gun regulations from the past, from the 17th, 18th, 19th century, as if because there were some safety regulations, there therefore is no right. And I think it's only with the Second Amendment that they take that particular position because every single right has some regulations to it. Thank you. Um, this one is from Bill Georgie or uh, Georgie from Facebook who asks, how do we overcome counties and states or maybe entire states, which won't issue concealed carry permits, especially if the state has outlawed open carry such as California and the second one being, why won't SCOTUS even hear a case on this issue, at least up to this point? Anyone can weigh in? Or I, I, I have thoughts. One thing that we did hear from the reporting from Joan Biskupic before Amy Coney Barrett was put on the court is that Chief Justice John Roberts had essentially told uh, his colleagues, possibly, although it's hard to tell where her sources are, that he was not going to be a fifth vote in a gun case for various probably image of the court reasons. But that's changed a lot, I think, since Justice Barrett got on. David? Uh, yeah, actually, that's very much in line with what I was going to say. Constitutional revolutions, like I can tell my class, are not made by five to four votes. Uh, there's always an issue. There's always one justice who is reluctant to go, quote unquote, too far uh, when it's five to four, you know, whether it's because they are not quite as devoted to that issue as their colleagues for public image reasons, because they don't like the idea that such an important issue is being decided five to four. So with, you know, occasional exceptions, if you look at constitutional history, if you want real, really major changes in Supreme Court doctrine, you want six, three or seven, two majority. So even if you lose a justice here or there, you have consistent at least five votes on the issue. Uh, so it's the same like with the Commerce Clause. Of course, we lost uh, Roberts on the Commerce Clause, but you look at the opinions from uh, the 90s and early 2000s, uh, like Lopez and Morrison, where it looked like the court might be reviving the Commerce Clause, but it was five to four, and O'Connor and Kennedy were sort of wishy-washy in, in Lopez, so you need that solid majority. So it'll be interesting to see what happens now that Barrett's on the court and has a record that suggests that she is, uh, if not necessarily a Second Amendment devotee, at least uh, cognizant and supportive of a general right to bear arms. 
Thank yes. you. Um, oh, Joyce. Yes, um, I think that the court has done great harm and not taking some of these really important cases that have been coming up. Uh, cases like California, where there really is no right to carry either concealed or open carry, where the kind of handgun that you are, are allowed to buy is one that doesn't exist. I mean, there's some terrible intrusions on the right in different states. And when the court doesn't take these cases, those stand. Um, but I'm really hopeful now that um, with a, a solid majority on the court that they will start to do that because otherwise there's no Second Amendment left. Um, but I think that now um, these some of these same cases where um, there are real restrictions on, on, on carrying a gun unless you can prove that you're absolutely in danger, as Nelson said, at any time, any one time. Um, those states still uh, have those laws standing. So I'm hoping that now the uh, Supreme Court will take a, some of these cases on cert. It could be, too, that sometimes some of the judges have not been willing to have a case uh, decide the other way, that there is no right um, to carry a gun. Um, unless you can prove an absolute danger at that moment. Um, but I, I'm much more hopeful now that some of these important cases will get taken by the court and uh, that the, the Second Amendment will no longer be an orphan. David, did you have another thing to add? Or I can't. Yeah. Or do, or yeah, just very briefly, uh, Joyce mentioned uh, that there's no right by uh, by a, a individual to insist on protection from the police, but there's actually a paradox there. If you're in a jurisdiction that that says you're not allowed to defend yourself, but also we're not going to defend you, uh, perhaps that should be a different story, right? There are cases, you know, if the police, you know, if you're in jail and you need health care, well, normally you don't have a right to demand health care from the government, but if the only way to get health care is to the government, the government has to provide it. So similarly, one would think either the government has to be obligated to protect you, or they at least have to have reasonable rules allowing people to protect themselves, uh, and certainly at least in their home. So I don't. So I do think there's this interesting issue of well, if the government's telling you that you there's no open carry, there's no concealed carry, there's no right to have a handgun in your own home. But by the way, if you call nine one one, don't expect us to be there. That, that that's the government disarming you and then refusing to protect you. And I don't know if more lawsuits are the right answer, but I'm skeptical that should lead to complete uh, absolution from liability of the government in those in those circumstances. Joyce, would you have a follow-up to that? Was that you or, or was it Nelson? Nope. No, I had I oh. had something. Uh, okay, Nelson. I, I, yeah, I, I think I think it's worth pointing out that um, that the issue isn't quite as simple as will the court recognize a, a right to carry uh, guns in public. Um, I think that once they finally take a case, which I assume they will at some point, they will decide that. Uh, they will grant that. Uh, because otherwise you've essentially read the word bear out of the out of the uh, out of the Constitution, and I don't think there's going to be a majority for doing that uh, anytime soon. At least as the court is is presently constituted, but that's only the first step in the analysis. Um, it's quite possible for the court to do something much like they did in Lopez with the Commerce Clause to say, sure, there's limits on the Car Commerce Clause, but they're going to turn out to be so narrow that it's essentially meaningless. And that could be done both with the right to uh, to keep weapons, 
and the right to bear weapons. Uh, they went fairways down that road in Heller itself uh, by endorsing all kinds of, 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 of regulations that weren't before the court. And they could construe the right to carry openly or concealed in public so narrowly uh, that it would have very little meaning. Thank you. All right, moving to our next question. Um, this one is from David Frost, who, thinks, who says, I think it's clear enough that the drafters intended for the people to be able to own military-grade weapons. What is the significance, if any, of the greatly increased power of military-grade weapons? Does anyone want to opine? Um, I, my, my general view although the category of military grade weapons can go from rocket launcher to, to a 1911 Browning 1911 pistol. But uh, my general view is that the increase in power of military grade weapons is not significant enough for the normal kind of use of these weapons to justify extinguishing the second amendment right in most instances. Uh, but I, I'm not sure if Nelson or anyone else had a, so they caught Joyce. Yes. Yeah. There's this very loose definition of an assault weapon. And the idea is that any weapon that you put in there that looks scary is like an, a machine gun or something. They aren't. I mean, an auto, a semi-automatic is not a military-grade weapon. And I remember uh, at one um, public council meeting, someone sent up and saying, you know, I wouldn't last an, an hour on a, in a battle zone with this weapon. I mean, it's it's very easy to call all these weapons, you know, dangerous and military grade, but they're really not. I mean, I think it really just um, distorts people's ideas. And basically, the things that are in this assault weapon uh, category tend to be regular semi-automatics with some uh, cosmetic features that make it look scary. Uh, but these weapons are not military weapons. I mean. They're, a, a rocket launcher is a military weapon, uh, but not a semi-automatic. I, I, yeah, I don't refer to the... Oh, Delsa, go ahead. Yeah, I don't think the distinction between military weapons and civilian weapons is particularly helpful uh, in analyzing the Second Amendment. At the time uh, that the Second Amendment was adopted, um, yes, of course, everybody was free to... Uh, uh, to, to own military-style weapons or military-grade weapons. With respect to small arms, there wasn't any distinction between the, between the kinds of weapons you were required to have in order to perform your militia duties and the kind you would use for ordinary civilian purposes. Um, but it's less well-known that people were uh, also permitted, and some did, uh, uh, own uh, military weapons like cannons. And for many decades after the after the Second Amendment uh, was adopted, uh, people were free to use cannons. Um, I, I know about one example, an abolitionist newspaperman uh, uh, in the 1840s, I believe, uh, uh, was using a cannon to, to defend his, uh, his print shop or his newspaper office or whatever it was. Uh, there just wasn't any regulation of, of, of military weapons in, in any significant way. It cannot follow from that that uh, people are permitted to own nuclear weapons or rocket launchers uh, or surface-to-air missiles today. It just cannot follow from that history. Um, and uh, fully automatic carbines and rifles uh, may be a kind of close case, 
but I don't think uh, whether they are or are not bannable, so to speak, should depend on whether they're called military weapons or not. No. As I, I mentioned, uh, oh. go ahead. Yeah. So, um, I, I think the distinctions is whether it's a weapon that's suitable for self-defense. And obviously, you know, a machine gun or bazooka is not a self-defense weapon. So, you know, the way I see it is that you're entitled to the sort of weapon that would be useful for your personal self-defense and not something that is, you know, a, a battlefield weapon. Yeah, well, as I mentioned before we started recording, one of the guns that I own is a is a M1 Garand, which which is the standard issue World War II American service rifle, which is a literal weapon of war, uh, but would not be qualified as a as a assault weapon under any definition that I've seen of assault because it doesn't have the pistol grip or the collapsible stock or any of those things, but it is a literal weapon of war that looks like a, a hunting rifle. Um, going back to uh, uh, questions from the viewers, uh, Ted Erickson asks, how would the court resolve the distinction between may issue and shall issue states in light of the text of the amendment? Does anyone want to opine on? Nelson? Well, uh, I'm, I'm not going to predict what the Supreme Court will do. Um, I can tell you kind of where things stand now. Um, uh, we no longer uh, have any jurisdictions uh, that completely and, and unequivocally ban the, the, the public carry of weapons. Uh, there was Illinois and there was a District of Columbia. Both those laws were struck down. Uh, the chief law enforcement officers in both cases decided not to seek cert. So now what we have is the vast majority of states do have some form of allowing people to carry weapons in public, uh, most law-abiding citizens. And then we have a few states that have these extremely onerous requirements that basically require an applicant for a permit to carry a weapon in public to show some extraordinary need uh, to have a weapon. And in some jurisdictions, uh, almost nobody, uh, you know, a, a nil number of people qualify. Uh, that, I think, is the main, the most practically significant issue that the court is going to have to decide, uh, or that the court should decide fairly soon, uh, which is whether those may, those extremely stringent may issue statutes are constitutional or not. Uh, but what they will do, uh, I'm, I'm not going to predict. Uh, people have a long history of making fools of themselves by predicting what the Supreme Court will do, um, and I'm not going to do it in this case. I'll do it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I will not give this an over 50% possibility, but I think that as many people have written, if the, if this court takes up the may issue versus shell issue question, the most useful current doctrine of constitutional law is time, place, and manner restrictions under the first amendment that essentially, if you have a parade permitting system that says you can have a parade between 10 and four, you can't have be too loud. And if you added another qualification to that, that said, and you have to be saying something really important as determined by the sheriff, well, it would be facially and blatantly unconstitutional. And I think that that similar reasoning is sort of open to the Second Amendment. Uh, but that's, of course, again, it's a kind of a fool's error to predict that, but it's it's an interesting analogy. Yeah, I, I think that I think it's a very good analogy. 
Um, and I think something along those lines would be a very, a very good development if, if the court analogized the Second Amendment to the First Amendment in this respect. Um, I'll just note that there's, there are quite a number of lower courts who have done no such thing and have found other ways to uh, uphold these uh, restrictions. And um, depending on, uh, on what goes on in the minds of the justices, uh, it would not be very hard to write an opinion doing the same thing that so many lower courts have already done, which goes the other way. That's a good point. Does anyone have any commentary uh, on, I, I have some thoughts, but, but of course you guys first on possible executive actions from the Biden administration. Anything that you think would be something to watch out for or something that, you know, would be a challengeable avenue possibly if he goes so far. Uh, does anyone have any comment on that? No. Okay. Well, um, oh, Joyce. Pardon, Jim. Um, there have been states like New York State and Connecticut, which have passed really um, very, very strict gun control, gun ban measures. And what has happened is that hundreds of thousands of gun owners refuse to abide by them. And sheriffs and policemen will not enforce them. So I don't know exactly what um, Biden has planned. Um, but it seems to me that if it's something that millions and millions of Americans do not want to go along with, um, it won't happen. Um, or at least that's my comfort. I think. I, I think people do not want to go along with something they feel that strongly about. I agree. Um, David, I, I missed it. Did you have a call? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Nelson. I, I don't I don't know what the Biden administration is, is going to do. And I've, I've kind of made an effort to not think about it uh, because I like to have a full night's sleep. So I try not to think about what the Biden administration is going to do about guns. Uh, but during the Obama administration, um, they had a gun control initiative. And at one point, somebody asked me to look into it. Um, and what I found was that it was all talk and almost no action. Uh, the, Bi the Biden, I'm uh, sorry, the, the Obama administration seemed to have remembered the lessons of the Clinton years, uh, which is this is a loser politically. Talk about this all you want, uh, make a lot of noise about it, but don't actually do much of anything. Um, so I think we can have some hope uh, that the Biden administration will follow a similar uh, path. But of course, the Democratic Party is a different party than it was uh, uh, just a few years ago. So who knows? I'm relatively optimistic. But David, did you have a comment too? Uh, sure. I was just going back to the issue of what the Supreme Court might do. I just wanted to mention that one thing that the court is really reluctant to do is to create a very any kind of test that would be very fact intensive, uh, because you know the especially the chief, but oh, he he's not the fifth. He's not, you know, you don't need the chief's vote anymore, but one reason he might be reluctant to wade into this is he attends all the judicial conferences. And the last thing he wants is all the district court judges complaining to him that our dockets are clogged with every local regulation in every town in our country of guns uh, being challenged in very fact-intensive ways that require trials. So to the extent that any of our viewers or my colleagues are thinking like, well, let's try to think of what kind of tests can the court apply that would strengthen the uh, the right to bear, keep and bear arms, you want some sort of test that's relatively straightforward, easy to apply. It doesn't require uh, intense scrutiny of the facts of any individual case. 
that's a good point. The com the common use test uh, is a little bit better in that regard, which is endorsed by a fair amount of people. Um, uh, I think we have time for one more quick one. Uh, in terms, well, actually, I, I won't make comment about because I didn't get out. I think that Nelson is correct about Biden administration. If you look at kind of the all words element, I had done the same analysis of Obama's uh, different measures. And you can always have the ETF ramp up enforcement and you can always have blocking of reimportation of military. Of, military arms have been linked to other countries that that is likely to occur there are some possible executive actions that i think are unlikely because i think based on the topic of this of this panel i think that second amendment has changed for the better and that there are more people who think about it in a different way and remember there are democrats who sit in seats that if they if aside from executive action from any legislation that will lose their jobs uh, if they vote for stringent gun control. And I think that's even more true after we had 35 million weapons being sold uh, this year. Um, and that's about, we have just about one minute. So um, does, I don't know if anyone has any final thoughts that they want to have any on, on anything or we can, we can call it off. Um, no? Okay. I don't think we have time for a one minute question of all the ones I'm looking at. Well, I want to thank everyone for participating in this excellent panel. It's an important issue, of course, uh, the question of gun control in America and the question of how we protect ourselves in times of civil unrest or protect ourselves even in normal times. Uh, you can look for more of their of, of panelists' work, um, all of which are professors or former professors at Anston Scalia Law School. And of course, you can find more work on the Second Amendment, including work by me at www.cato.org. Have a good day.